I love Star Wars. I watched Luke destroy the Death Star as a wide-eyed eight-year-old, and I relished the downfall of the Imperial walkers on the ice planet Hoth. I rejoiced with Luke at seeing his father, Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, restored in death to the good side of the Force, glowing faintly alongside Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Jedi Master Yoda. In the 1983 version of Return of the Jedi, Anakin's Force ghost looked like the old, wounded, disabled man whose body Luke rescued from another Death Star about to explode. Hayden Christensen, who plays Anakin as a young man in the prequels, Attack of the Clones and The Revenge of the Sith, was only two years old then. Yet, the 1983 film has since been edited so that his image is the Force ghost, alongside Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda. I find this troubling, and not just because I'm a cantankerous old fan who likes things the way they were. For a theologian with an interest in disability, the swap calls to mind the worries of some disability theologians about continuity and discontinuity in the resurrection. If disabilities that marked us or our loved ones in this life are eradicated, how does identity persist? George Lucas explained in an interview that when Anakin Skywalker was redeemed, he went back to being the person he was before he was consumed by the dark side. The real Anakin ceased to be when he became Darth Vader. But the replacement of the post-Darth Vader Anakin with the young pre-Darth Vader Anakin creates enormous problems for thinking about the resurrection, even in the fictional Star Wars universe. Anakin seems to lose most of his adult life. Would he remember that he had been Darth Vader or that he saved Luke's life? If he doesn't remember the event, how can this force ghost be the same person that Luke rescued from Death Star 2.0? George Luke's decision to replace Sebastian Shaw, who played Darth Vader in The Return of the Jedi, with Hayden Christensen introduces radical discontinuity into the narrative. The substitution does not give us the real Anakin. Instead, we are left with neither Anakin nor Darth Vader, but a different person, someone Luke would not have recognized and who might well not recognize either Luke or himself. In a similar vein, Nancy Eastland mused that without her disability, caused by congenital degenerative bone disease, she would be unknown to herself and perhaps to God. Her perception of resurrection healing was that she would be as different in the resurrection as Hayden Christensen is to Sebastian Shaw. Drawing on classical Christian teaching from Gregory of Nyssa to Matthias Schieben, I will show in this paper that Eastland's concern is misplaced. Considering the way that the resurrection body is often portrayed, however, her concern is understandable. Disability theologians' qualms about the resurrection deserve a retrieval of the classical doctrine that addresses their suspicions about the discontinuity of identity in the resurrection and upholds the full humanity of people with disabilities, even profound intellectual disabilities. In one sense, the questions raised by disability theologians are not new. 
first century Christians argued about the transformation that St. Paul envisaged, which involved continuity and change. In 1 Corinthians, he tells us a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. Christians debated the nature of the change involved in putting on immortality, and in their debates asked questions about the continuity of identity. Early Christian thinkers, like third century theologian Tertullian, were keen to establish that the ensouled body resurrected to punishment or reward was the same as the earthly embodied soul that merited one or the other. For Tertullian, the resurrected Anakin must be the same Anakin that merited reward or punishment in order that his reward or punishment be just. Modern theologians ask about the identity of the self. Will I still be me in heaven? That is, is the Force Ghost alongside Obi-Wan and Yoda really Anakin Skywalker? Would they recognize him? Would Luke recognize him? Would he recognize himself? Depictions of the resurrection of the body that highlight the body's perfection, even if that perfection only enables the person to experience the punishment he or she deserves, make it seem as though a Sebastian Shaw, Hayden Christian, Christensen kind of swap is taking place. Stereotypical portrayals of perfection in the resurrection tend to involve cultural ideals and assume the eradication of disability in heaven. Theological accounts of heaven drawn from the broad and deep river of classical Christian doctrine, like that of 19th century theologian Matthias Schieben, do not describe the stereotypical resurrection body. Yet they do not make clear that our resurrected bodies will not simply conform to ideals of beauty and perfection. Schieben explains that the transfiguration of the body in the resurrection is a, quote, glorification which completely transforms nature, end quote. This transformation sublimates the body and its life, makes impossible the revival of its natural shortcomings, eliminates its natural defects, and makes the body perfectly submissive to the soul. Human nature in the resurrection, he writes, must become, quote, an unsullied mirror for the reception of the light of glory, end quote. The elimination of natural defects implies the cure of disabilities in heaven. To illustrate more fully the qualms of theologians who work on disability about this cure, I will give an overview of the concerns they raise and consider an example of the misapprehension out of which Nancy Eastland's doubt about being known by God or herself without her disability arises. Brian Brock, a friend of mine, a Christian ethicist and father of a young man with Down syndrome and autism, worries about notions of resurrection in which people are raised from the dead without, quote, the traits that are constitutive of the identities of people with all sorts of mental and physical disabilities, including autism, end quote. If not in the physical and behavioral characteristics of their earthly existence, in what does the continuity of their identity consist? Just such a concern prompted the Pentecostal theologian Amos Young to ask, Quote, if people with Down syndrome are resurrected without it, 
In what sense can we say that it is they who are resurrected and embraced by their loved ones? End quote. The idea that the soul is the principle, principle of each person's continuity and change, which Jung draws from Gregor Nyssa, does not satisfy him. Nor would it satisfy Francis Jung, a historian of early Christianity, whose eldest child, Arthur, was born with profound disabilities. She explains the problem with conceiving of the resurrection as bringing forth of a self which was hidden behind disability. And she writes, there is no ideal of Arthur somehow trapped in this damaged physical casing. He is a psychosomatic whole. What sense would it make to hope for healing in cases like this? Suppose that some faith healer laid hands on Arthur tomorrow and all his damaged brain cells were miraculously healed. What then? Brains gradually develop over the years through learning. The development of ourselves as persons is bound up with this learning process. I find it impossible to envisage what it would mean for him to be healed because what personality there is is so much part of him as he is with all its limitations. Healed, he would be a different person. End quote. In dismissing the notion of an ideal Arthur, Francis Young captures the essence of my colleague's apprehension about the resurrection of the body. If Arthur's body is perfected and glorified as Sheban describes, how can it possibly be his body? Whether the healing is like the restoration of Anakin Skywalker, which erases his disfigurement, or like the miracle healing Francis Young describes, the problem is the same. For those who consider disability in some way constitutive of identity, perfection is more threat than promise. Healing that eradicates a disabling condition does not just alleviate the associated suffering, it deprives people of a core aspect of their identity. Amos Young's interpretation of an anecdote narrated by Robert Worsey, historian of American Catholicism, offers an example of the way disability functions as a core aspect of personal identity. Young writes, Orsi tells of his uncle Sal, who had cerebral palsy, and of Sal's relationship with the patron saint of people with disabilities, Margaret Costello. Margaret was a limped, hunched, blind, and dwarfed woman who accomplished more than 200 miracles. Sal anticipates recognizing Margaret in heaven and saying, I like it that there's somebody up there like us. This suggests not only that Margaret will retain the features of a disability even in a resurrected body, but also that Sal anticipates that the vestiges of his disability will not completely disappear even in the eschaton. The sense is that all will be okay in heaven, not because bodily or cognitive parts have been fixed, but because the people of God will be fully in the presence of and love of God." Young takes, I like it that there's somebody up there, like us, as evidence that Sal believed that both he and Margaret would retain their disabilities in heaven. He assumed that Sal looked forward to recognizing St. Margaret by the traits that marked her in life, and so also that Sal's comments sprang from a belief that people marked by disability in this life will retain at least the vestiges of their disabilities even in the eschaton. This reading of Sal's comment leads Young to assume further that Sal's devotion to St. Margaret is connected to the way in which their disabilities identify them both. 
I do not think that Sal's comment means what Amos Young thinks it means. The literary and historical context of Worsley's anecdote hints at a different frame for theological reflection on the resurrection of the disabled body. Orsi reports the exchange with his uncle in an essay in which he criticizes the narrative of the holy cripple in the culture of suffering in mid 20th century Catholic America. He offers Sal's spiritual life as a background and context for his uncle's comment about St. Margaret. Orsi explains, and this is Orsi. Sal has always been a devout man. He says the rosary daily, surrounds himself with images of the saints, and plans to be buried in the robes of the Third Order of St. Francis. Sal made a home and a future grave for himself in these idioms. Through them, he could find comfort, consolation, and meaning for himself. In the prayer books, tightly wrapped with rubber bands and jammed into a duffel bag fixed to the back of his chair, Sal had access to an intimate language for discovering, making, and naming his desires, fears, and hopes and a language in which to address them to powerful figures who, he was told, would be listening closely to him. Devotionalism also gave Sal a set of practices, making the sign of the cross, fingering his beads, touching holy water, and so on, through which he could embody the prayers he was saying. It was in this world that he found Margaret of Castello. In response to Sal's comment that he was glad to have someone like him like uh, Margaret up there, Orsi asked, don't you think that St. Francis and St. Anthony can know what you feel since they're saints? Sal's response was an angry rant in which he reminded Orsi, you can get up and walk out of here today, but I can't. Neither Orsi, Orsi nor St. Francis nor St. Anthony would ever know what it was like to be crippled. Sal wanted Margaret's intercession in the present because he believed that she understood his experience he was not looking forward to an eschatological meeting that would show that he was okay without being fixed. Orsi's description of his uncle's devotion and the exchange he reports both suggest that Sal's spiritual life followed the outlines of mid 20th century Catholic devotion. He prayed, he attended mass, and he believed in the communion of the saints and the resurrection of his body, which he would have expected to move freely in heaven as it did not on earth. The example of Sal and his devotion to Margaret of Costello suggests a continuity of identity through the healing of disability. Despite our inability to imagine what we or our loved ones would be like without disabilities, God does not depend on the appearance or function of our bodies or our minds to identify us. Yet that does not mean that disabilities are invisible or unimportant to God who heals all our diseases. Nancy Eastland's statement, as Amos Young has put it, calls attention, sorry, quote, calls attention to how living with disabilities shapes our lives, relationships, and identities in substantive rather than incidental ways, end quote. And it points to a number of overlapping and intersecting concerns raised by the full healing of cognitive and bodily impairments. These concerns fall into two broad sets, and I will describe them now in turn. In the first place, how we imagine the resurrection matters. Young and others push back against the modern preoccupation with a narrowly conceived notion of health and wholeness that assumes the abnormality and undesirability of disabled bodies and minds, which is reflected in stereotypical portrayals of the resurrection. Resurrection healing may be taken rightly or wrongly as the ideal for a normal human life, 
in normality has supported the exclusion of dis people with disabilities from various aspects of life, educational, social, cultural, and religious. Second, making sense of disability also involves facing questions of theodicy. If disabilities are healed in heaven, why does God allow disability on earth? Is disability punishment for sin, as is implied in, by the disciples' question in John 9, who sinned this man or his father? Uh, it's also implied by Job's friends' explanations of his misfortunes. Eastland, Young, and others, including Pope St. John Paul II and Salvifici Dolores, rightly insist that disability is not punishment for sin. Yet both Young and Eastland relate the disappointment and shame that followed from prayers for healing that did not result in a cure. Against their concerns, I wish to point out that if disability were eradicated so completely that Eastland would not recognize herself, then there, was no, there would be no reason for Sal to believe that there was anyone up there like him. In that case, lightness would disappear along with the disability. But Sal's reference to someone up there like us suggests, paradoxically, that St. Margaret's resurrection body would be the perfected body of a disabled woman. Her body would have all the characteristics associated with the resurrection, and yet it would not be the body of a different person. Young is not wrong to think that something of a person's disability remains in heaven. The question is how we ought to imagine disability in the resurrection. Exploring this question in a way that addresses the concerns of my colleagues in disability theology takes us to the core of traditional theological anthropology, that the soul is the person's continuity of identity and change. We can be sure that the person in heaven will be shaped in some way by earthly disability because the soul remembers the body it informed in earthly life, and that is the body to which it will be reunited in heaven. The earthly impairments of the body will not impair the body in heaven because body and soul will be perfectly united in the telos of human life, which is to enjoy the beatific vision, not to, let, to run like Hussein Bolt or think like Albert Einstein. Those who see traditional theological anthropology as a threat to personhood need to be convinced of four things. First, even those with profound intellectual disabilities have a rational soul. Second, the soul is not the same as the self. Third, the soul and body form a unity. And finally, they need to be convinced that the person raised is identical, yes, numerically identical, with the earthly person transformed. But there is a caveat. Understanding that the soul is a principle of continuity and change does not answer all our questions. Christian doctrine points to a mystery. We cannot grasp the mechanics of union of soul and body, and we cannot explain why the rational soul, which is the form of the body, does not perfect everybody in this life. I begin with the rational soul in addressing their concerns because it has often been wrongly conflated with the mind by my colleagues in disability theology. This mistaken impression about the rational soul raises questions about whether people with profound intellectual disabilities have a rational soul. In order to show that the soul is every person's principle of continuity and change, I distinguish here Christian teaching from misconceptions of it. Differing ideas about the rational soul lead to divergent accounts of the human person. On the one hand, there are those who, like Amos Young, 
argue for the full humanity of those with profound intellectual disabilities by describing the image of God as an emergent property rather than the essential feature of human beings. This move abandons classical Christian theological anthropology, which is accused of making the exercise of rational thought the measure of full humanity. In developing his emergentist anthropology, Jung consciously shelves hylomorphic anthropology, implying that it is an outdated and barren concept. Reading Gregory Nyssa in conversation with an emergentist view of the person, which he draws from neuroscientific studies, Jung constructs a theological anthropology that posits, quote, the soul as an emergent set of distinctive features and capabilities constituted by, but irreducible to, the sum of the body's biological parts, end quote. This allows Jung to interpret the Imago Dei not as what we are, but what we are all in the process of becoming. Our resurrected bodies will look like our earthly bodies with the marks of disability, for example, the phenotypical features associated with Down syndrome, intact. A person with disabilities does not need to be healed, therefore, in order to enjoy heavenly life. Jung suggests that a gradual healing will take place in heaven. The resurrection will be the beginning, he says, of our transformation. On the other hand, there are those, myself included, who argue that whether or not an individual can exercise the capacity for rational thought, she has a rational soul. The rational soul not only makes us rational, but creative and loving as well. As the principle of identity, the soul is the driver of the resurrection body, yet the soul is not the site of disability. The very essence of our being is our capacity for God, for our peculiar participation in God, our reflection of God's image. Impairment of the mind or body does not disable the soul. Because disability doesn't impair relationship with God, people with disabilities, even profound cognitive impairments, are no less in the image of God than a professor of moral theology. A cognitive impairment may constitute a disability in the world, but it does not disable a person in his or her relationship with God. The inability to exercise the capacity for rational thought does not hinder God, because we do not reason our way to God. God reveals himself to us. It is not the clever who Jesus says will see God, but the pure in heart. So far, I've set out Amos Young's definition of the soul, which he developed in conversation with Gregory Nyssa, and then recent theological engagements with neuroscience. And I want to go on to talk a little bit more about Gregory Nyssa here. He targets the question, how, quote, how the material and immaterial realms relate to each other, unquote. And in so doing, Young misses one aspect of what Gregory has to teach him and us about the paradoxical nature of Christian teaching on the soul. Gregory's teaching on the soul is typical of his exposition of the mysteries of Christian faith. He sets out what we must say about the soul and explains the reasons why we must say what we say. Nevertheless, he tells us, we cannot explain fully what the soul is. So although Gregory can explain, and does explain, the reasons for Christian teaching about the soul, the mechanics of the mysterious union of soul and body, like the mysteries of the Trinity and the Incarnation, remain beyond the grasp of human comprehension. In On the Soul and the Resurrection, Gregory gives what seems like a technical definition of the soul and then riffs on its elusiveness in On the Making of Man. So I think Jung is stuck between these two. Gregory defines the soul as, quote, an essence which has a beginning, a living and intellectual essence which by itself gives to the organic and sensory body the power of life 
and the reception of sense impressions as long as the nature which can receive these maintains its existence, unquote, by definition. Yet that does not mean we can know, and here's Gerger again, how it comes into being, how it is composed, whence it enters into the body, how it departs from it, or what means it possesses to unite it to the nature of the body. These are the questions that Jung would like to answer that get him into trouble. Scripture and its interpretation guide belief and give shape to Christian teaching, but not everything admits of explanations of the kind modern people like Amos Young have come to expect. I say this now so that when I do tell you that hylomorphic anthropology and the concept of numerical identity help us to understand that the soul is a principle of continuity and change, you will not think that either of those concepts tells us how the material and immaterial are related. The soul is present to God in this life and the next. God, who is closer to me than my own soul, as Julian of Norwich observes, ultimately ensures the continuity of identity both in earthly life and in the resurrection. To say that, however, is not to explain the mechanics, but to sketch the shape of the mystery. That having been said, I intend now to explore the particular mystery of the way that the disability of the body on earth marks the unique essay of the individual soul. We don't know how the soul is shaped by disability. That pertains to the mystery of the union of the soul and the body. But in this section, I consider one proposal that begins to do the necessary work of explaining in a technical way why we ought to believe that the soul is the form of the body, and yet maintain that the soul may retain some impression of disability. Terence Ehrman uses hylomorphic anthropology to argue that even if people with disabilities are fully healed in the resurrection, their identity is not compromised. I draw on his essay on disability and resurrection here because his account of hylomorphic anthropology is clear and targeted towards objections to mystic theological anthropology. He explains clearly for us that any given entity is composed of form and matter. Form, he says, actualizes matter and gives the entity its unique characteristics. He describes the unity and form of matter by analogy with a word and its meaning. And I find this, this particular analogy very helpful um, in speaking to my, my colleagues in disability theology. The human being, he explains, in the human being, he explains, quote, the soul is in the body the way that meaning is in the word, end quote. As the form of the body, the soul is its organizing principle. On the basis of this account of body and soul, Ehrman shows why impairments or disabilities are not intrinsic to the nature, intrinsic to the human being. The soul forms the body according to human nature. Resurrection identity means being the same body-soul unity one was in earth, earthly life. Continuity of identity is ensured because hylomorphism entails numerical identity. A numerical identity means we are not just the same kind of entity we were before, but the very same entity. As he explains, the continuity of identity resides primarily in the essay of the soul, and that soul is configured to only one body. My soul cannot inform any body but my own in the resurrection. Therefore, if I am resurrected, I can only be resurrected as myself. My soul has to be united with my body. That's the force of numerical identity. Arthur in heaven will still be Arthur, even if he has gained all the capacities his earthly body lacked. His soul will still remember. The essay of his soul will still remember. So Margaret Costello, without her limp, her hunched back, or her blindness, remains like Robert Orsi's Uncle Sal in heaven. 
At that point, that which prevented the soul from forming the body perfectly for its telos, joy in God for eternity, is gone. Something of St. Margaret's disability must remain because she is still St. Margaret. But whatever remains isn't disabling in heaven because there is nothing in heaven to stop the embodied soul from full participation in divine life. Ehrman offers another analogy to guide our thinking about continuity and discontinuity in the resurrection. He gives the example of an academic on sabbatical in a foreign country who might be limited by challenges of working in a language other than her own. Back in her home country, a colleague who'd only seen her in the previous environment might marvel at her performance and tell her that she finally enjoyed seeing her in her natural environment. And this is what Ehrman says. In the resurrection, we shall finally be in our element and in action, transformed in God's love and grace. We shall become truly ourselves in our true homeland, freed from all limitations of the fallen world. Provided that we take the analogy to apply to all of us, which I think it does, it helps us to think about the continuity and discontinuity problem in the resurrection. It also points us back to an important consideration that we are destined to enjoy the beatific vision in our true homeland. The point at which the analogy breaks down is telling though. That which we struggle to do in the foreign country is to allow the Holy Spirit to be the cause of all our actions. That limitation is far more serious than the limitations we perceive when we look at those labeled disabled. We are all spiritually disabled by sin and require a complete cure. Ehrman concludes by reflecting that perhaps some marks ought to persist in the resurrection body. Augustine speculates, Ehrman explains, and I quote, about radical healing in the resurrection, such that the wounds of the martyrs will not be deformities, but have a dignity luminous in beauty. Any lost members will be restored, and the marks of the martyrdom will not be considered defects at all. I suggest that this final reflection of Ehrman's points to a way of thinking about the soul and body I've not seen elsewhere. Disability often, uh, theology often reflects on the wounds of Christ as well, but we ought to begin with the incarnation. The incarnation points to a different way to imagine earthly disabilities, the way earthly disabilities imagine, sorry, I'll begin that sentence again. The incarnation points to a different way to imagine the way earthly disabilities affect the soul and persist in heaven by analogy with the way that we believe that Christ suffered impassively. It is a paradox. The incarnate word of God suffered in his flesh. The disabled body of St. Margaret remains the disabled body of St. Margaret. It is the perfected and glorified disabled body of St. Margaret. Thinking in this way might help my co colleagues in disability theology, yet there are still a couple of questions I need to address for them. In this penultimate section of the paper, I address two outstanding concerns. First, there's a concern that the beauty of the perfected body in heaven corresponds to cultural ideals. Perhaps some literary and artistic representations of the resurrection body do depict cultural ideals. A theological account of the resurrection body, however, begins with the idea that beauty and perfection are properly characteristics of God, in whom humans merely participate. The body, therefore, has no beauty or perfection of its own, but reflects the beauty and perfection of the soul, which participates in God's reflection and beauty. Per, sorry, perfection and beauty. How the body reflects the soul's beauty remains to us a mystery. I am willing, however, to suggest that measuring the body against our cultural ideals of beauty and perfection would be a bad mistake. 
Whatever the body of the perfected soul looks like, there is no diet or workout that will enable us to achieve it. The training of the body may be good for the soul. Ascetic practice rests on this assumption. And the making perfect of the soul must likewise be good for the body, though we are ordinarily unable to recognize it. Second, the most threatening feature of traditional accounts of the resurrection is the dominion of the soul over the body, which, as Sheevan says, quote, can be made complete only by the power of God's spirit, end quote. It appears to them as the worst sort of dualism, pitting the immaterial soul against the material body. But this is where the platonic analogy of the musician and the instrument, which Gregory uses in On the Making of the Man, breaks down for two reasons. First, the musician and the instrument can be separated and each retain its integrity, whereas the human person's integrity is the union of body and soul. Second, the kind of separation involved in the musician-instrument analogy allows us to see body and soul in a competitive way. Imagining the soul and body as potentially in competition is a mistake. The soul and body are no more in competition than the heart is in competition with the brain. How then are we to think about the soul, the body, and the union between them? As we've seen, we must think of the soul as not separate from the body and of the union of body and soul as that which a human being is. The body is a body because of the soul that makes it a body, and not just a body, but the specific body it is. I suspect that the hesitation about hylomorphic anthropology is partly owing to Aristotle's reputation among feminists and partly owing to a lack of engagement with the concept. Amos Young, as I observed earlier, set it aside without exploring it in any detail in favor of a combination of theological and neuroscientific concepts that he believed stood a better chance of explaining unity of soul and body. Right. He developed his emergentist anthropology in an effort to set out, quote, what constitutes the image of God and what defines human nature, end quote. Against the concept of the human being as a soul-body composite, Young set the problems of, quote, how the material and immaterial realms relate to each other and the more recent neuroscientific evidence that correlates mental life with cognitive brain states, end quote. But Gregory Nyssa would likely remind Amos Young at this point that our account of soul does not allow us to specify, as Gregory said, how it comes into being uh, or what means it possesses to unite us, uh, united to the nature of the body, end quote. The correlation of brain states with mental activity, on the other hand, which Young observes and is part of his evidence, Young seems to assume that proponents of a composite soul-body account of the human person would, would associate mental activity with the soul rather than the body. No, the mind is not the soul. Even if the mind's activity were the soul's activity, the association of such activity with brain states is just what we ought to expect from a soul that animates the body. And finally, in conclusion. I've shown that we have good reasons for expecting that our earthly experience of disability will not simply disappear in the resurrection. In our thinking about the resurrection, we need to bear in mind, however, the magnitude of the transformation involved, as I suggested earlier. The difference between those of us with even the most severe disabilities and those without disabilities is negligible compared to the difference between the way we are now and the way we will be in the resurrection. Being cured of sin and made pliable to the guidance of the Holy Spirit is a more radical change than the lame walking and the blind seeing. I hope I have convinced you that we go wrong if we seek the principle of continuity of identity or personhood in the person with heavy emphasis on the body. 
because the principle of human identity and continuity is the soul as it is present to God. Eternal life is that state in which our relationship with God is our primary identity, and we see ourselves, and presumably will see and be seen by others, in the light in which God has always seen us. In heaven we will be different, to be sure, but that is not to say that in heaven we will be a different person. In heaven we will be our true selves, beings created and held by God through all the chances and changes of this life. This may be surprising for us and for those who have known us, but the revelation of who I am will not shock God, in whom I have lived and moved and had my being from the moment of conception until my eternal rest, and it will really be me. Because the resurrection of the body in Christian theology is not like coming back as a force ghost, which is a resurrection that relies on the fertile and capacious imagination of George Lucas. As creative as he was, Lucas was not able to imagine a true self that incorporated, somehow, all that Anakin Skywalker had been, disabled and powerful, devoted and cruel, and all that he had done. Lucas could only imagine bringing back the real Anakin by reducing him to the person he was before he was seduced by the dark side. In the Manichaean universe of the Star Wars saga, there is no redemption, no hope of redemption. But what if George Lucas could imagine a force that was only good and only moved all things toward the good, a force that could not be thwarted, and a dark side that would only ever be a shadow, a privation of the force, and not an opposing power. Then he might have been able to imagine a reality in which Anakin Skywalker was always sustained by the force, which would account for his ability to save Luke after years of cruelty. But we do not believe in force ghosts. We believe in the resurrection of the body by God's grace, which doesn't have to annihilate parts of our identity to bring us to our true selves. In John's Gospel, we learn that he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. The next person to come to Jesus, the light, is the Samaritan woman, who finds Jesus by the well. In the exchange that follows, Jesus reveals his identity to her, a woman of irregular marital status. She ventures, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. And Jesus replies, as you well know, I, speak, I who speak to you am he. The woman leaves her water jar and goes into the city. Come and see a man who told me all I ever did, she says to the people. Can this be the Christ? A disreputable woman becomes a witness to Christ. Her deeds are brought into the light and inexplicably found to have been wrought in God. To answer my disability theologian colleagues, in this sense only, only in the light of redemption, when the delightful ordering of creation is revealed, will the impairments and failings that characterize our earthly lives find their true place in our identity. In the resurrection, we will find ourselves as if for the first time, and yet also, somehow, mysteriously, know ourselves as we've always been. Thank you.